that our text this morning should begin with, let not your hearts be troubled. And that is not the statement of, it's not a Pollyanna statement, somebody whose head's in the sand, who is somehow detached from reality. They're words of Jesus, and the reference to troubled hearts is actually something we've seen more than once in this very gospel. We've seen the description of the disciples on the stormy sea at night when they saw Jesus coming to them on the water, thinking it was a phantom, and they were troubled, agitated, full of anxiety and fear. The words used of Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus as his heart breaks for a grieving family. And it also is used to describe Jesus on this very night as he anticipated the cross, the betrayal of Judas, and all that he would undergo. So, to be troubled is not necessarily sinful. It is part of being human in a sin-cursed world, even for the God-man. Jesus understands what it's like to be troubled. He does have deep compassion for us. This very night, He has shocked the disciples by doing the slave's job of washing their feet. There's probably not a one of them that didn't feel shame that they hadn't been the one to take care of it. He's declared to them that one of them will betray him and that Peter, the outspoken leader of the group, will himself deny the Lord three times before the night ends. He is going to proceed with fleshing out a theme that they dreaded, how he will be leaving them soon through a brutal series of events. No wonder their hearts troubled. What could possibly steady them through this extended ordeal? And why was it necessary for these calamities to happen now? Where is God in all of this? They might have been asking. What is He doing? And, and, and what of their conviction that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah, the Savior King of the world? Well, Jesus will answer these questions and others that are troubling their hearts this faithful night. We begin our reading in John chapter 14 and verse 1. We'll read through verse 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know Him and have seen Him. And Philip said to Him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. 
But the Father who dwells in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Everything coming to a head this night has to do with the divine mission of Jesus as the one mediator between God and man. He is the reconciler. In verses 1 through 6, Jesus explains that He alone opens the only way to God the Father. He is the revealer. To know Jesus the Son is to know God the Father. That's verses 7 through 11. And He is the intercessor. Jesus empowers our works and our prayers to God's glory. Verses 12 through 14. Divine mediator. This is the answer to our troubled hearts. This is the answer to our broken world. Jesus is first of all the reconciler, or He opens the only way to God the Father. Let's look at these familiar verses once again and let them sink into our hearts. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to Myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Like a bridegroom preparing a place for his bride and then going to get her to bring her to her new home, Jesus is going to prepare a place for them through the series of events the series of deeds he's going to undergo. These men did believe in God. These men did believe in Jesus. But their Lord and Master is calling them to push their faith further yet, beyond the limits of anything they've exercised before, to trust Him even as they enter a series of events that seem to them completely at cross-purposes with who they know Jesus to be. They know about His identity. They know He is the Savior King but they don't fully comprehend how He will accomplish His mission according to God's promises. They're confused about that. In time, they will understand far better how it all fits together. They will testify to the world, the words and the works of Jesus the Messiah. They will write it down in what would become the New Testament, explaining to all people everywhere how Jesus ratified the new covenant in His blood to call together a people transformed from the inside out from every nation and tribe on earth, and that that would last through many generations. Jesus explained there are many rooms, many dwelling places, many places to stay in His Father's house. The very thing you fear most, Jesus says to him, that I'm going where you cannot come now? Well, I'm going to prepare a place for you. 
to dwell there with me forever. Think about it. No sinner could ever deserve to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We wouldn't dare enter such a place but for the crucified Savior King who will make a way for it to happen as our mediator. He's preparing a place for his bride. It required the humbling incarnation of God the Son, a perfect life, his suffering and death for sin, his resurrection to the dead, his ascension to the right hand of the Father where to this day he intercedes for his own. It is a heavenly bridegroom's ultimate expression of love for his bride that he goes away through the ordeal he's about to endure. He does it for their sake. He does it not to leave them orphaned, not to leave them abandoned, not to forsake them in their misery and their fear. He does it to rescue them and to bring them to himself forever. I mean, think about it. What difference would it make if you knew Jesus for three and a half years or knew Jesus for a lifetime on earth, and then the moment you die, you lose that relationship? What you need is a relationship that will break through the bars of death and will last forever. What you need is a relationship that will rescue you, not just from a broken world, but from being the broken person that you are. And this is what Jesus was going to the cross to do. Jesus was displaying for us the kind of love that, that... The Scriptures call every husband to show to his wife. For Paul writes, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might cleanse her and sanctify her by the washing of water with the Word, so that he might present the church to himself with splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You look at any local church today, and you couldn't describe it as splendor, no spots, no wrinkles, no blemishes. But what Jesus has done on the cross will eventually attain that objective, where everyone who's part of His body, the church, will be presented blameless before God who sees all without any spot or wrinkle, the perfect bride. So Jesus is using the imagery of a Jewish bridegroom making his home ready for his bride and then coming back to bring her to live with him. If I go to prepare a place for you, verse 3, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Whenever you have a deep friendship, deep love relationship with somebody, somebody you admire and follow, and want to be close to, the greatest gift they can give you is the gift of themselves forever, to make sure that that you'll never be left alone. And that's what Jesus is doing for them. What Jesus is saying, though, is still unclear to His disciples. So, Thomas confesses, "We, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know how to get there? And Jesus answers with one of His most loved I am statements. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, where Jesus is going is to God the Father in the heavenly city where there are, and it's really an understatement, many dwelling places. 
He himself, Jesus, is the only way for us to get there. The Apostle John will later describe this heavenly city. He will see it with his own eyes in a vision. This city will one day descend to the earth, according to Revelation 21 and 22. It's a vast city, 1,500 miles square and 1,500 miles high. Its foundations made of jewels, its streets pure gold, its gates of pearl, shining with the light of God through the entire complex, the river of life running through from the throne of God with the tree of life along its banks. It's, you know, you see this in, in big cities of the world that have sufficient funds to do it. You'll see them intersperse parks among the buildings so it's not just a concrete jungle. Well, here you have not a concrete jungle, it's a, a jeweled jungle, if you will, but not a jungle just shining with the the light and the splendor of God, complete with gardens and rivers. It's essentially giant Eden. It's Eden on steroids. It's a recovery of Eden. If you look at the description of heaven, you look at the description of Eden, the description is the same. It's a paradise. And in fact, Jesus even describes, describes heaven as paradise to the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. That was a Persian word for an enclosed garden. And that's the way this city is. That's the, where the dwelling place of God is. Hebrews 12 tells us that innumerable angels and in festal gathering are there along with the assembly of the firstborn, that is the people that belong to Jesus. The spirits of the saints made perfect. They inhabit this capital city of the universe where God the Father, Son, and Spirit reign, where the angels ascend and descend, carrying out the objectives of God, rejoicing over every sinner that repents. God the Father, Son, and Spirit are there. And Jesus, the Son, is the only way for sinners like us to get there, the only mediator between God and man. There is no other way to the Father's house. He's the way and He's the truth. His promises and His words are absolutely reliable because He's absolutely reliable, and He has signed His covenant promises with His own lifeblood, and He's the life for all who trust in Him, receive life eternal from Him. He has been teaching His followers this for years at this point. So, isn't it obvious that we human beings can't, by our own power and intellect, bridge the huge gap between our sinful, finite selves and an infinite, holy God. God has to make the move to bring us to Himself. It's something only God can do, and that's the mission of God the Son, Jesus Christ. If he's not telling the absolute truth when he makes these claims, then he's not the Savior God. He's not even a good person. He's engaged in the greatest scam of history. And if he can't give his followers eternal life, what good will heaven do for them? They won't live to enjoy it. He's the way, the truth, and the life the one who reconciles us to God the Father. So I ask you this morning what crises are troubling your heart today. 
all of them will in time be completely resolved by Jesus who reconciles us to God. We want immediate relief. We cry out in the pain of it. It seems like it's going to go on forever. But there's an objective, and Jesus will not fail to achieve it. Even as He talks to His disciples, He's looking through time to what will be done. And then ask yourself, what other ways do people imagine will get them to God and into His heavenly house? And why do Jesus' words here expose such schemes as untrustworthy? You know, people have all kinds of ideas about how, what God's like and how to get to Him and whether they'll spend time in heaven. But Jesus made it absolutely clear that He's the only way. So you're left with this choice. Either He's a liar and you're left to the guessing game, or He's telling you the absolute truth and you should rely completely on Him. The path Jesus had to take to make a way for us was exceedingly painful. And those who follow him will endure painful circumstances as well. But I want you to think how infinitely valuable was the suffering of Jesus and ask yourself whether following him, and he said that involves taking up a cross, is also worth whatever temporary pain you must bear. The beauty is coming. The perfection is coming. The glory is coming. The joy is coming. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes because He, Jesus, is the reconciler. And He's also the revealer. He serves in His mediatorial role this way. He's the go-between between God and us this way. To know Jesus the Son is to know God the Father. And this is what Jesus addresses in verses 7 through 11. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know Him and have seen Him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. As Jesus has done many times before, He points to His words and His works as proof that He and the Father are one. He taught as no other mere human ever taught. He revealed things only God could possibly know. John introduced Him to us in chapter 1 as the Word. What's a word? A word takes a meaning from one person to another. It's the vehicle of communication. Jesus is that vehicle of communication between God and us. He's the Word who is with God and who was God 
and who pitched his tent alongside of us, displaying the shining splendor of deity in a way that, that we could observe closely, full of grace and truth. His words, he would say, are spirit and life to those that receive them. John 5, 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, present tense, eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Well, what happens if you don't believe? Well, he says to those who wouldn't believe, you will die in your sins. You will answer to God for your sins. You will endure the wrath of God rather than be spared the wrath of God. Jesus' works were miraculous, His healing blind and lame, raising the dead. I mean, even His enemies couldn't deny it. John 5, 36, He says, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. I mean, how do you get to know anybody? You listen to what they say, and you watch what they do. So, how do you get to know God? Listen to what Jesus says, and watch what He does because He is conveying to us exactly who God is. If you want to know what God the Father is like, look to Jesus. Listen to His life-giving words. Don't shut your ears to them. If you have ears to hear, let them hear. Consider His miraculous works. He made God knowable for us. God is spirit. He's invisible. He's, he's infinite, and, and we're finite. How could it how could it be possible to know someone we cannot see or touch? But John the Apostle will testify in his first epistle, that which was from the beginning, referring to Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. Now, I'm reminded of what science is. We use the five senses to observe and draw conclusions concerning the word of life. The life was manifest, that it was revealed, it wasn't hidden, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. We didn't just make this up in some ivory tower. We didn't get philosophizing one day over the lunch table. We actually experience this person, Jesus, and we're telling you about it, that you too may have fellowship with us, that you may share with us, you may have in common our experience of Jesus, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The apostle saying it this way, look, we closely observed Jesus. We saw Him, we touched Him, we heard Him, we observed Him, and He made God known to us, and, and now we're making Him known to you so that you can have the same experience we had as those who knew the Lord personally, so that you can not only know Jesus, not only know us, but know Jesus and also know the Father. People, millions and millions of people have come to know God personally because of the apostles who knew Jesus personally, who showed by His words and His works exactly who God is. To know Jesus is to know God. He is the revealer. He mediates the impossible distance between God and man and makes God knowable. Otherwise, we could all be agnostic. We could all say, well, you just can't know. We're human beings and He's God. 
but he has made himself known, and, and he's made himself known in human form. God has become man so that we, as human beings, can know him. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says precisely this. Long ago, that many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Basically, the, the Bible is a collection of firsthand testimony to what God says and what God did. And, and the preeminent revelation that he gave us is his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance shining out of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is the revealer. God testifies over and over again through the prophets that His Son, the Messiah, was coming, that He would bring life to sinners like us. And Jesus puts it this way to those who studied the Scriptures in His day, but missed how they pointed to Him as the promised mediator. John 5, 39 to 40, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. He was talking to the Bible scholars of the day. They could quote more verses than most of us will ever know. It is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. It is possible for you to know all kinds of doctrine, all kinds of Bible verses, to have been a long-time church member, and yet never have actually come to Jesus who gives you life. He is the only way. He is the only one that reveals God to us in this saving way. So if you feel distance from God, study Jesus and learn who He is. You will come to know God for who He is. In what ways are you making it then a priority in your life to know Jesus through the testimony of the prophets and the apostles? I mean, that's one way to, to, to read your Bible, look for Him, look for Him. Look at the testimony God has given to him. And, and when did you come to him? Has, can you remember a time when you came to him for eternal life? And if you haven't done so, why not? What is keeping you from coming to Jesus? I mean, what good reason do you actually have you know, a lot of times when people are, are struggling with whether to receive Jesus or maybe they've grown up in the church and they're just not sure it's all true, you find them running away from the testimony than, rather than running to it. Look, if you're struggling with doubt, look to Jesus. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. And are, are you really willing to consider Him the greatest liar and fraud that ever lived? Are you really willing to think of him that way because you really, it's, that's the choice that is left to you, or unless he's just crazy. Because this record is eyewitness record of what he said and what he did. You can count on it. You can rely on it. You can rely on him, the revealer. And then he is 
also the intercessor. For Jesus empowers our works and our prayers to God's glory. He says in verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read these words, the word that comes to mind is audacious. Audacious promises, these. How could anyone do greater works than Jesus did? All the healings, raising people from the dead, rescuing the redeemed. I mean, what else is left? Well, once the apostles were empowered by the Holy Spirit, they too healed the sick and raised the dead. And they took the message of redemption through Christ Jesus to all ethnicities. On the very day the Spirit was given to them, in keeping with the promise of Jesus, 3,000 souls came to trust in Christ. That added more disciples of Jesus in one day than had followed Jesus his entire ministry. And tens of thousands soon followed in faith, and millions since then. The gospel broke through to the Gentiles, spreading throughout the Roman Empire into Asia and Europe and in time to the new world. Just as Jesus promised his apostles in, in Acts 1, his spirit-empowered apostles would bear testimony about him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world where this very day we worship Christ Jesus, the Messiah. They would, in the words of their enemies, turn the world upside down. They did miracles, and God answered their prayers. For they prayed in keeping with the name, the revealed character of Jesus. They come to the Father through the mediator, Jesus Christ. He intercedes before them, for them before the Father's throne. We, we sing, before the Father's throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. That's why we have confidence to come boldly to a throne of grace. The apostles did not do miracles all the time, though. They did miracles as God enabled them to do them at strategic times in keeping with His will. God still works miracles in His time and in His way. Not every prayer receives immediate answer in the affirmative, but we can know that when we pray, God hears and God answers in keeping with His perfect will, sometimes surprising us with how He intervenes. I look, I look back over a lifetime, and yes, lots of disappointments in things that I've prayed for, but I've also had, had answers that, that blew my mind, where God did things I hadn't even dreamed of. We pray because we know the power is not from ourselves, but from Him. We pray because we know how dependent we are on Him. We pray because He calls on us to do so. He has proven His love for us and bids His children come. Jesus intercedes for us. He is our mediator when it comes to praying. He is our mediator when it comes to living for Him, for He sent His Holy Spirit to empower us. Even when He seems silent, 
It is for our good. For he has promised that all things, good or bad, work together for good to them that love God, who are the called according to his purpose of being conformed to the very character of Jesus Christ, his Son. So in what ways do your works show dependence on God for his power? I mean, I want you to think about this because we spend so much of our life just confined to doing what we know we can accomplish ourselves. What would God have you do that would require you leaning into his ability, into his strength? Sometimes it's just surviving. Sometimes it's being bold in his name. But what about your life has the mark of God on it where it shows you're leaning into his power and his power is flowing through you? And in what ways do your prayers show reliance on God to do what we cannot do ourselves? I mean, we struggle, right, because we feel responsibility to obey the commands of God, to, to share the gospel, to, to rear our children to follow the Lord, to, you know, to reach out to our co-laborers and, and our neighbors, and we, we, we know we have an obligation to God, and yet we also know ourselves to be weak and frail and, and fickle, and, and we're kind of hit and miss. Well, Jesus says we need to be praying in his name, so that we can be empowered to live as we ought to. That, that we can't live our life like, like we can supply all the strength and the wisdom on our own. You can't do it. You're not smart enough. You're not strong enough. And, and the things we desire most, they are the things we, we can't do. That we need God to do. And we do it with an attitude that Jesus had toward the Father, not my will, but thine be done. We, we lean on him to do what only he can do. And how can the conviction that Jesus is interceding for you as your mediator in your service to God encourage you toward good works and faithful praying? I mean, why shouldn't your life be characterized by good godly works and faithful praying because of Jesus, who is your intercessor. We are troubled people living in a troubled world. And the one who turns the tables is the divine mediator, Jesus Christ our Lord. Because our, you know, our troubles ultimately root back all the way to the Garden of Eden when we fell into sin and, and the world was cursed. And we were cursed with it. And so it makes sense that, that through Jesus, who's the Redeemer, who, who removes the curse, who will rescue us from it, that He's the one that is our path out of troubled hearts in a troubled world. He's the reconciler, for He opens the only way to God the Father. He's the revealer to know Jesus the Son is to know God the Father. He's the intercessor. For Jesus empowers our works and our prayers to God's glory. Let's not try to live this life alone. Let's lean on Him. Let's pray. God,
on any given day, and certainly this day, we are very aware of our limitations, of our sorrows, of our weakness, of our brokenness. We're very aware that there's much about life here that is troubling and troubling not just around us, but troubling deep into our souls. So, God, we look to you. We look to Jesus to rescue us. We look to him to draw us close to God the Father, to make, to make a place for us in the heavenly city, to make God's home our home. We look to Him to help us understand better who You are and to help us trust You more. Even when so much about life is confusing to us, You are confusing to us. And Lord, we look to Him as our intercessor. For as we live and as we pray, we know that our strength and wisdom is not nearly sufficient. We need His. And we pray, we pray, God, that we will carry out Your works and Your will because Jesus is interceding for us this day.